So when you get a neighboring building uh, ignited, the ability of the surrounding um, vegetation and buildings to be able to withstand that heat begins to degrade. And so what we're, what we're talking about is how, how the proximity to an ignited home affects the neighboring home. And so basically when there's more homes that are uh, involved in fire nearby, there's a greater and stronger prediction that the, the subject home is, is going to fail. Uh, so I think of it a lot like COVID in, in essence. It's basically a study of epidemiology. When there's more people around you that are carrying the disease, the likelihood that you may contract the disease increases significantly. So so it's kind of the same same piece, but what I think this really says is that we all need to work together as a community uh, because our neighboring homes affect our own survival in a way that we're maybe not aware. We can't really armor our way out of this just by ourselves. We need to lift everybody together. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Life with Fire podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today we have a special show for you. We brought on guest host Zeke Lunder, who was a guest of ours back in May of this year and Zeke did a lot of really great work this summer uh, kind of disseminating information particularly about the Dixie Fire and other fires in that area in Northern California. He really committed a ton of time to analyzing maps and getting people information some you know good contextual information about the Calder Fire and the Dixie Fire and a couple other fires in that area over the summer And because Zeke brings a lot of background and experience in the wildland fire realm, and especially with GIS and mapping and those sorts of things, I think it really provided a lot of great context and information for folks like homeowners and visitors to these areas who were really desperate for information in the midst of some of these really large wildfires. All of Zeke's work this summer culminated in him starting The Lookout, which is an invaluable resource that, like I said, kind of provides context and provides more of a storytelling element to some of the information that's provided about wildfires. As Zeke says in the About section on the Lookout website, uh, he was kind of realizing that Twitter, Facebook, and other fire information pages weren't really telling the kinds of stories that he wanted to tell, basically saying that we're drowning in information but lacking in context. So his objective with the Lookout is to help people get a better grip on how fires work, how they move across the landscape, how we fight them, and how to tell when they're doing good work for us. Zeke was also considering starting a podcast for The Lookout, so I kind of wanted to give him a platform to give the podcasting format a try, and he's also been able to speak with people in person, which I have not had the ability to do. I don't really have a space for it, and I also haven't gotten a second microphone yet. And most of my interviews, actually all of my interviews for this podcast have been done on Zoom. So I was really excited that he was able to become Life with Fire Podcast's first in-person podcast. So that all being said, I will link to Zeke's website, The Lookout, in our episode's show notes. And we can get right into the episode that he recorded for us. This is the first of two that he recorded. And in this episode, he spoke with two fire researchers, uh, Jana Velkovic and Eric Knapp. And I was truly blown away at how high quality this episode is, uh, not only with the audio production and with the questions that Zeke asked, but also with just how fluid the conversation was and how informative it was. I've had a lot of folks asking about how to build greater home resilience or how to build defensible space, and this is really the episode for you. It's kind of a 101 in that topic while also kind of exploring the paper that Yana and Eric uh, co-authored, which essentially explores how homes have become a type of fuel, much like brush or trees or grass. 
And especially so in really populated neighborhoods and areas where if one house ignites, then it's going to increase the risk of houses nearby igniting. That's the essence of it. Of course, Zeke and Yana and Eric go into much greater detail about that, so I will leave it to them. But thank you for listening. Thanks to Zeke for guest hosting this episode and for providing such great insight into the recovery efforts in paradise following the campfire. And also, of course, to Yana and Eric for all of their great work. And I will include a link to their article that's referenced throughout this episode in this episode's show notes. All right, let's get into it. I appreciate you guys listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to The Lookout, everyone. Today is November 8th, 2021, and that means it's been three years since the campfire destroyed the town of Paradise. Uh, Paradise is about 10 miles from where we're sitting here in Chico, California. And after the campfire, a couple of my friends who are fire researchers uh, came out with me and we looked at destroyed buildings in Paradise. And since then, they've been doing quite a bit of research on some of the factors that helped homes survive and other factors that took homes out during the campfire. So I want to welcome Eric Knapp and Jana Valkovic to the lookout. And um, thanks for coming and thanks for the work you've been doing. Can you tell us a bit about the paper you just wrote? Well, first, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. And I don't think we planned this to be the anniversary of the campfire, but uh, it was also the 30th anniversary of the Oakland Hills fire just uh, two weeks ago. So it's it's kind of timely to be reflective in this space and thinking about what a future adapted and resilient California looks like. And, you know, I just want to appreciate you, Zeke, because you took us out um, got us behind the lines uh, to be able to get inside uh, the fire footprint of the campfire, um, not to be so much as a, a study of, of the experience, but to open the door to um, the place for learning. And it's I know it's uncomfortable to, to look at communities and look at homes and look at everyone's lives and treasures, but if we don't take the moment to reflect a little bit, it's hard to figure out where we're going to go. And I think what this paper starts to do is detangle some of the, the critical issues that have been holding us back. And what I hope we can do through podcasts like this and through other opportunities is start to chart that course forward about what does resilience look like and how can we be more thoughtful in this space and really uh, create an environment, both the landscaping, the forests, the oceans, the rivers, all of it, and where we live in this place uh, so that we all can survive and thrive. Well, it, this is obviously a bit of a departure for me. Uh, I do most of my work with, uh, you know, vegetation, science, forestry, and prescribed fire. Uh, but just when you experience a, a, a summer like that, uh, you know, we're all a curious people, and we want to we want to figure out you know, what what um, happened. A number of us, you know, Yana and I included, um, started discussing, you know, what was happening and we tried to, we wanted to learn about what was threatening the homes, why uh, we, we were getting a lot of um, questions from the media about what was going on. And we just wanted to learn about what we could do better to live with fire. And just, uh, and part of that understanding comes from a better uh, understanding of the mechanisms by which homes are lost. So as a scientist, we often get to design experiments and test assumptions and evaluate variables and look for cause and effect, adding a variable in or taking it out. 
But when you start looking at about community resiliency, it's something you can't do easily. You can't build a community and build a replicate community and then burn one down and see how it performs, right? That's uh, something we'll never allow. Um, so paradise, as much as it was a tragedy, it was also an opportunity to ask some questions about how we build, where we build, what we build with, period of construction and whether that has an influence, how do codes perform, uh, does slope or aspect or the quantity of vegetation make an effect in building survival. So we were able to use those kinds of variables to ask some key questions about era of construction, survivorship, failure, damage in that environment, and really test some questions about whether the new building codes are making a difference. So can I run me through real quick the key findings of your study? What we did in, in just in brief is we just looked at um, satellite data, um, you know, aerial photographs uh, after the fire, and we, we we were it was pretty clear when we were on the ground there that there appeared to be some effect of a neighboring structure burning. We we wanted to see how strong that effect was in relation to uh, vegetation variables. Oftentimes with fire, we think about defensible space and managing the vegetation around our houses. So we looked at uh, both those variables and, and, uh, and then analyzed, you know, wh what were best predictors of whether a home survived or not. And in, you know, one of the main things we found is that both the distance to the nearest destroyed structure and vegetation matter, and they matter quite strongly. Uh, we were surprised, actually, how strong the, these factors were. But in a lot of the uh, statistical models, it's actually the, the distance to the nearest destroyed structure and the number of destroyed homes you had within 100 meters of your uh, house uh, were the most important factors uh, so, in, in home so survival. So suggesting that the houses in the densest neighborhoods, the places that have the smaller lots, were more susceptible? Well, yes and no. And, and I think... I think this is an interesting point. And I think if you sort of step back, it's really a community effect, this idea that we're all in, in this together and uh, we're only as strong as our weakest house. So when you get a neighboring building uh, ignited, the ability of the surrounding um, vegetation and buildings to be able to withstand that heat begins to degrade. And so what we're, what we're talking about is how, how the proximity to an ignited home affects the neighboring home. And so basically when there's more homes that are uh, involved in fire nearby, there's a greater and stronger prediction that the, the subject home is, is going to fail. Uh, so I think of it a lot like COVID in, in essence. It's basically a study of epidemiology. When there's more people around you that are carrying the disease, the likelihood that you may contract the disease increases significantly. So so it's kind of the same same piece, but what I think this really says is that we all need to work together as a community uh, because our neighboring homes affect our own survival in a way that we're maybe not aware. We can't really armor our way out of this just by ourselves. We need to lift everybody together. Right. So once a house is on fire nearby and there's no firefighters there to put it out, it's really likely it's going to take out the neighbor's house. It has a high potential. And there are ways that we can look at those particularly vulnerable elements on buildings themselves to be able to harden them. That's the home hardening concept, uh, to be able to you know, create greater heat, 
heat resistance quality. So windows, for example, are really um, just a regular annealed window can't handle as much heat as a tempered glass window can. So uh, if your garage is detached from your building or you have a bunch of sheds around your property where we have windows that face those garages and sheds, if those are to fail or like if you have a wood shed, I live in a pretty rural area where a lot of people have wood sheds. Um, if that's close to your your house and you've got a window facing it, uh, you know, increasing the, um, the strength of that window and that wall would be warranted. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it was just, um, you know, one of the things that fa we found in the statistics is that, um, the distance, there was a kind of a threshold of if you had a structure burning within 59 feet, y you had a much lower probability of survival. And, and that might not necessarily be a house, like Yana said. That could be a shed. Uh, that could be a garage. And oftentimes, these other structures, we don't really think of them as something we need to fire harden. But that all can take out a house. And I think what's important about that is, so far, a, a lot of our focus has been on vegetation, of you know managing the surrounding vegetation and defensible space. But in reality, the, 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 the homes and, and, the, and the sheds and things that like we have on our properties, they dwarf the amount of fuel that's in the surrounding landscape. So it's just important to consider all aspects uh, and not that vegetation didn't matter because it also was a, an important factor uh, in, in, the, in the models. But it wasn't important like, you know, what we, what we actually measured was the canopy cover of trees. But the way... The fire actually happened and it's seen in a lot of fires is that in in this landscape the trees a lot of the trees actually survived and so it it wasn't so much you know like living green vegetation where the fire was going from crown to crown it was the, the, the association probably was the fact that when you have higher canopy cover there's probably more fuel on the ground which is carrying fire and so you know, trees they play an important role in our landscape and 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 I've seen a lot of trees I think being needlessly cut down for fear of of uh, a fire. fire a fire hazard but really what you have to in, in understanding how fire burns uh, the, the hazard I think is is the what the trees produce it's the leaves that fill up gutters it's and fill up you know roof uh, lines uh, right. and it's the pine needles that can carry the fire. Yeah. So, and you mentioned that you were out there today and you just saw a ton of leaves on the ground. So when we think of the campfire happening in November, it's just, there was all this fresh black oak leaf fall and pine needle fall from the windstorm that could carry a surface fire. Yeah, that's right. So knowing that one might be rebuilding or one might have a house in a forested environment, I'm fine with, but the idea is how to look for those places where that material is going to accumulate and harden them or figure out a way how to design a building so that you don't create those accumulation points. Right. So when you have roof to wall intersections and you're asking the roof to perform really well and then you're asking the wall to perform as well as the roof, it can't unless you do some additional work to make that intersection work better. So the simpler the roof line, then there's less accumulation points. So if it were me and I was rebuilding in paradise, which I would happily do, uh, I would be thinking about creating the simplest structure I could so I don't have those places of accumulation. So just even something as simple as just having a really simple roof without a bunch of dormers and gables. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And not having these weird intersections and roof planes and, you know, the 
this really complicated look, which is very popular in kind of our modern culture right now, but is maybe not setting us up for the best success. I'd also be adding gutter guards of a non-combustible material. So, you know, you want those gutters because they keep your siding in good shape because otherwise the water runs off and hits the lower siding and begins to rot out the, the lower portion of the building. But they also accumulate materials. So uh, if you can keep that, you know, all that pine needles and, and oak leaves and whatever you might have in the environment out of those gutters, so the better. So what are some other things, um, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of the keeping a clear distance of, you know, say five feet just right off of your house. So you're basically saying that a lot of small fires that were moving across the landscape could catch the houses on fire. And then once the houses were on fire, they'd catch the neighboring houses on fire. I think one thing that um, was eye opening for me after the campfire was just this idea that there won't be a fire department there when a community burns down. And a lot of us have become used to thinking that we just need to do enough defensible space that firefighters can safely save your house. I mean, that's the whole root of the term defensible space is to make it safe for firefighters to come save your house. But you're saying basically that we need to assume that during a fire like this, there won't be any firefighting. The firefighters will be working on saving people's lives and evacuating people. And so we really have to think about those little things like a small fire burning up to your home. Well, exactly. And I, I think, you know, you know, just following up on your idea. So defensible space is a California term and it's written into our code. And, and I think you're exactly right. I think we thought of it in a defendable space mode where you would modify fuel behavior such that if there was a fire coming through trees, it would lay down to the ground and you could put an engine and a crew there and they could have flame links that were something that they could attack directly and it would be safe. Uh, but now what we're realizing with these wind uh, ignited fires or, or distributed fires, you end up with embers and other material coming over and across your defendable space, and suddenly the building itself is vulnerable. And so, you know, when you have these extreme events with a lot of wind behind it, you know, where are our fire crews? They're working on evacuation, as they should. That should be the first priority to get everyone out uh, who needs to get out. So, how do we design and retrofit our buildings so they're most able to be strong in that moment when there isn't a crew there? So for me, there's three, three main priorities. The roof needs to be in really good shape. Um, it needs to be well-maintained and it needs to have, you know, someone regularly looking at it. Uh, then um, <clears throat> the vents all need to be uh, meet uh, Chapter 7A standards, which basically mean they are ember and flame resistant. So they can handle heat exposure and they can handle embers moving and being thrown at them. And so they don't, you know, they're not um, penetrated. And so you don't end up with, you know, something inside your house that's burning on the inside. Uh, and then third um, is this what we now now terming in California zone zero, which is the first five feet out from the building needs to be of non-combustible material. So underneath the deck and around the building, uh, sort of flip-flop where you put your gardens, pull those out a little farther and put your walkways closer to your house, for example. And that way you'll be able to see your plants better when you're looking at it from the inside of the house. You'll have to look out and see them as opposed to like trying to lean over right. and look down. So um, it's kind of a win-win. So those three, the roof, the vents, and those first five feet, that's the biggest the biggest barrier to to home surviving i think it's a little tough in some of these mountain communities because where you have snow that comes off your roof you end up putting all this stuff right up against your house so it won't be buried under the snow berm etc and so kind of re this kind of requires us to rethink you know i think one of the reasons we end up with so many sheds scattered everywhere is just that it's premiums you know having covered space is a premium 
and especially if you can't put it right up against your house. So I, I thought it was interesting what you said about thinking about that you need to build a shed also to this fire resistant standard. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is that a lot of us hillbillies have built sheds out of whatever <laughs> we had on hand, you know, so pallets or leftover barn wood or whatever. As long know. as it's, you know, safe from the elements, that's how we thought about it. But all of that affects our survival. So, and I think that's exactly the point. It's a paradigm shift. I mean, for us to rethink this moment and this time and how we build, I feel the question a lot, like, you know, should we not allow construction in a community like Paradise? Or should, you know, and I'm like, well, where, where would we allow construction in California? Every part of California is vulnerable to wildfire at some time or another. You know, what do we do in, in earthquake country? You know, we adapt and we build smarter. So do you have any idea on like some basic costs to take a, your typical kind of home that might have been in paradise before the fire and retrofit it to a standard that might have held up better? Sure. So there's a, a good study that was produced by Headwaters Economics that looks at new construction because um, that's a, at least a known environment, right? You can you can plan out an existing building and, and be able to evaluate it. And it's about a 3% additional cost to meet these new standards. Uh, so in, you know, in a $250,000 home, that's that's relatively modest overall. There's a number of things that people can do to retrofit their existing structures. Um, if they've got, you know, a little bit of know-how and a little bit of muscle power, much of it is is quite affordable and, and not a huge barrier. So um, there's some, if you can implement that, that non-combustible zone around the house, then you may not need those flame-resistant vents and you can just use uh, eighth-inch metal mesh screen to upgrade your existing vents. Uh, okay. That can be tacked on on the inside or on the outside. Either way, it depends on how it's, how you're, how your vents are set up um, but that's a very low cost uh, kind of retrofit right it is so one thing I noticed when we went out there uh, and just in working in the campfire after the fire was just that you just didn't see a lot of old shaggy kind of houses after the fire that almost all the houses that we saw when we drove around after the fire were newer or really well-maintained older homes uh, what did you guys find as far as age of structure in survival but we definitely saw a home age effect. I mean, we the home was built before 1997. About 11% of them survived. And homes built after 97, somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 45% survived. So there, there was a big effect of home age. And, you know, some of that has to do with just our, our building standards have changed over time. And there's more cement board siding used. Uh, it's just newer, um, and but also um, that the roofs are still in their period of performance, right? If you you know if you put on a new roof right now, you'll get a twenty, forty, thirty, forty year lifespan on a roof, right? You're you're buying that that degree of longevity and durability. So, you know, going back to nineteen ninety seven, we're only you know twenty five years, thirty years out there, right? That's that's still within the period of performance. When you look at older buildings, you don't know whether or not people had done the appropriate you know, modifications and upgrades that needed to happen to that roofing. And just uh, based on what we, we saw out there and what I saw in pre-fire images, it's also just our propensity to collect stuff on our properties over time, more sheds, uh, more stuff against the house, uh, and, and just maintenance, you know, embers love rotten wood. Uh, so, uh, you know, o over time, uh, these houses just became more vulnerable. And also the older houses in Paradise tended to be a little closer together. So why do embers love rotten wood? What's the mechanism there? Uh, well, it's just it's much, more easy, much easier for an ember to actually ignite rotten wood. Well, I mean, think about it. How do we start a campfire? Do we start with 
big rounds of wood or do we start with small kindling? Right. Well, we start with usually newspaper and some kindling and then you put the bigger pieces of wood. When a board is rotten, it's got a lot more um, places of penetration. Right. It's it's already becoming more like kindling than it is like, a, you know, a piece of firewood itself. So, you know, there's a little more a few more nooks and crannies. There's a little more air contact. Um, you know, there's more places for for, you know, a, a little bit of dryness to occur so that, you know, the ember can ignite that. Okay. Yeah, one thing that occurred to me after we were driving around in paradise is just that when you have a leak in your house, then the fire can get in, right? And I think of now, I, I think a lot about um, wooden boats. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you have a wooden boat and you don't maintain it, um, it'll leak and it'll sink. And <laughs> houses are kind of the same I mean, if you have um, you know, cracks in your eaves. If, you know, if you have cracks in the eaves or if you have kind of loose corners on your, um, your gutters or your, you know, your fascia boards. Those are just places that the fire can get in and sink your house. And when I think of a wooden boat, I think, man, all that maintenance is really expensive, you know? Um, and so there's this kind of, um, this real tie to people's well-being well and ability to afford that. And just, I think also that you have to, when you buy a house in a place like paradise, you really have to think about this, um, this regular maintenance isn't just kind of a luxury or something that makes your house look good. It's this necessity to survive. Yeah. I think people are looking for simple solutions right now. You know, my mom will say to me, well, I have a metal roof. I'm fine. Or someone will say, well, I, I have stucco siding or, you know, I've got hardy plank. And it, it, there's no, you can't really buy your way out of this, right? It's, it's between the materials and how they were installed, how you've maintained them, and then your attention to all the small details. I mean, it's all of that. It's a coupled effect that looking at the whole environment, um, that's what it takes is for us to shift and think about, you know, the vulnerability that we may experience. It may be flames coming directly at the building. It may be radiant heat where you've got heat transfer through the air, or it may be these embers. And so we have to be able to figure out our structures for all of those types of fire exposure and be kind of on our game all the time thinking about it um, you know we live in earthquake country we talk about earthquakes we talk about the things we need to do to be ready for that but we haven't I feel like as a culture gotten to that place where we sort of uniformly talk about fire and what do we do and what's our game plan for the weekend and you know how you know how do we invest and make sure that our properties are in the best condition possible and a lot of it isn't expensive it's just really paying paying attention to it and being willing to be proactive when we see something go uh, go south a little bit and need some extra maintenance. Yeah, I, I going back to one of your points you made earlier, it's just uh, the, the shift is in thinking of w living with fire. We, we, we need to live as if fire was inevitable. And I think in the past we have lived and built our infrastructure and gathered and, and done stuff around our home thinking that we don't have to think about fire because uh, the fire department is just down at the corner sorry, right there's a hydrant on the corner yeah, yeah. and so uh but just th just that shift i feel uh you know may may lead to people uh just considering fire in their decisions and and some of the stuff like yana said is is quite simple you know just and we saw some of that today when we were up in, in the campfire there's just a lot more use of uh rock rather than bark mulch right up against houses uh, we saw things like uh, instead of 
people building their new wood fence like right up to the house so that you know the flames can reach up into the eaves if they catch fire and these fences are sort of ember magnets they're using uh you know have, having a, a section of metal you know wrought iron uh so disconnect that fence from the house I and mean, so we we definitely saw some positive things today uh that that make me feel um better about the rebuilding up there that it's you know it's on a good trend and I, I guess overall, I'm really optimistic that we can do better with a little more knowledge, a little more power, um, and you know our our building officials being on board with us, and our supply companies being available and understanding what we need, and and just kind of a whole you know community infusion of thought and idea, and you know how long did it take for us to really figure out how to deal with earthquakes? Um, you know, it took many generations and we all in school drop covered and holded and practiced drills and thought all about that and when it comes to fire we really haven't done that much but with that power and knowledge i think we can propel ourselves uh, in a really successful way if we just pay a little more attention to these details and you know figure people have figured out how to live in you know hurricane country and tornado country uh, we can figure out how to live in fire country I'm less optimistic. I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, I know you guys. I know you guys' job is to um, to um, try, try to make this stuff um, accessible. And um, I look at some of these places you know, with your findings that the houses are the fuel, and we talk a lot about thinning fuels and reducing hazardous fuels. It's like, well, there's some places where that would mean removing houses you know that if the houses are the fuel that is spreading the fire from house to house um, in these places where we have these i feel that it's inevitable that we're going to burn down a lot more towns like paradise and that we need to be thinking more about how we rebuild in a more sensible fashion i agree with you i mean we're in a period of adjustment i don't, I don't think the next five years look remarkable it's going to take a while to get there and I mean, we are seeing, you know, $1.5 billion investment come from the state of California. That is huge. I mean, we spent $5 billion on fire suppression in California in 2020 alone. And in the last 10 years, we've burned down 14,000 structures and 171 lives have been lost. I mean, this is, what does it take for us to really make that kind of investment? Well, it's taken a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss that none of us want to go through again to get to that place of investment in California. So now can we do the same at the federal level? I mean, what if we just spent dollar for dollar the same amount on suppression as we do on prevention? You know, right now we've just had crumbs in the toaster in terms of the amount we've spent on, on prevention. Right. Not that pouring money at it is the only solution, right? I mean, pouring money is part of the solution, but even if a you know, bazillion dollars showed up today, we don't have the qualified workforce, we don't have the trained professionals, we don't have the infrastructure it takes to process the fuels to make the building products that we need. I mean, there's, there's a lot of room for improvement. And I mean, I can, I can go down that pessimistic line pre pretty easily. I mean, there's a million barriers. But on the other hand, what I think we suffer from is a lack of vision of that it's possible. And so you see a lot of sort of defeatist discussions and everybody's going like, well, hell, I don't know. And if, and if we can't chart a course forward, then we're not going to go anywhere. You know, sure. we're going to stay in that same place. And I don't know. I mean, I've got kids, you've got kids. I, you know, I want to believe that, that we're an adaptive thinking society that can right. reflect on where we've come from and make better decisions. I agree. I think the people need to understand the seriousness of the challenge ahead, you know, in places like Nevada City and Grass Valley, where we've got huge concentrations of old structures, 
um, in places where it's the physical layout of the town makes it impossible to really achieve vegetation management at the scale that's necessary, that people need to understand that they need to do everything possible. Like that, they, it's not something that we can just kind of sit back and think like, okay, we're going to put some new screens on our vents and going to be all right. Because I think we're just seeing, you know, there's not anything fundamentally different about Nevada City than there is from Paradise. Or coastal towns. I mean, all of California is in a vulnerable situation. And really all of the Pacific Northwest is too. I, Look at Sedona, Arizona. I mean, there's, <laughs> there are so many communities that have challenges. But, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I tend to be more of an optimist uh, than a pessimist. Uh, but I think the data that we, that we found, we, that we, when we analyzed the data, it, it, it gave us reason for some optimism. And that's because, you know, if, if it was just a random thing up there and, and nothing, if nothing really would have mattered we wouldn't have seen such a strong effect of these simple variables in the model. But the fact that there was some really strong explanatory variables uh, just you know, g gives you the sense that there's things that can be done to change yeah. the outcome. I think, though, that just not being pessimistic, but just being realistic is that things like if, if the critical factor is the spacing between houses, that there's not a lot we can do about that. You know, we can harden each house and make sure that it's less likely they're going to catch on fire, but we can't really thin houses. Well, you can prevent them from catching fire or make that uh, such a low probability that that doesn't no longer becomes, that's no longer an issue as the housing density. Right. Well, I think it points that we need to like address that a lot of the problems we have that make these neighborhoods really um, susceptible to wildfire are social problems you know, of poverty and lack of capacity to um, cut brush or, um, you know, hoarding or just um, this deep poverty that means that people end up with five cars in their yard and 20 years worth of recycling on their deck. Well, I mean, let's come back to that fact. I mean, we're all in this together, right? And so, you know, how do we help us become a more resilient and healthy community, right? And I think this maybe becomes a conversation point. Maybe this is the point where we actually are not divided by politics and not by, divided by social economic class, but understand that there's a lot we can do to support each other. And I mean, I grew up in very rural California where everybody was an individualistic and, but yet we all still had some some social norms in terms of looking out for each other and making sure, you know, so-and-so was still going in and out to town and getting food and, you know, whatever they needed. Like we, we looked out for each other. So I think fire is something that you can, can unite us. And, and for those that can't, right. I mean, then there's a whole nother side, right. There's those that can't. And so what can we do to help them make sure that they have a better alert system, that they have ways to get in and out, they have someone looking after them? I mean, you know, Paradise has a lot of that story, too, about people that didn't get alerts and couldn't get out, right? right. So how do we also lift those folks up and help them to, to our best of our abilities? There's a lot, a lot of work to do in that space, and that's not what this paper talks about necessarily, but for people that are not in a place where they're ready to embrace these kinds of changes, then they need to figure out an alternate strategy about when to leave early. So is it those red flag warnings that they really are, which are frequent, right? You, you live in a place where you get them a lot, but um, that that puts you on notice that today might be the day, 
and you go through that mentally every day when you've got a red flag warning. Okay, today might be the day and I'm, and I'm ready to go and maybe I'm ready to go early. I think one thing that stands out in Paradise is that even though defensible space didn't necessarily help save all the homes, that all that cumulative defensible space people had done saved thousand people from dying in their cars. You know, when you look at the, um, how much vegetation grows on the ridge and how much reduction had happened, just from everyone cutting a little bit of brush, um, we really did change the outcome of the fire. Right. You got safe evacuation routes out for the most part. And I think what I, both Eric and I were struck by today is, you know, driving around and realizing how many trees are still there and that it still feels like a forested community for the most part. And I mean, there's a few places where, you know, it got a little hot and took a few trees down more than I would have expected. But for the most part, it's it's pretty much a continuous vegetation cover still. Um, a lot more than I would have expected. So you have any closing thoughts on, um, you know, how this study can kind of, how can we get this kind of information out to people, uh, you know, make it you know, less academic and more approachable? Well, I mean, we, we wrote a scientific paper, but we, we, we hope to write that. It was written in a way that is accessible to um, a broader audience. But then, you know, part of that is to, you know, come on shows like The Lookout and, and try to explain our, our, our results in not a scientific way, but more of a conversation. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and talk about it. We appreciate the invitation. Right. Thank you, Zeke. All right, thanks a lot. All right, folks, that's what we've got for you for episode 21 of the Life with Fire podcast. I'd love to thank Zeke once again for coming on as guest host, and we will have one more episode with him as host in the next week, I believe. Uh, it will be with Sue Hazari, who's a total legend in the fire world, total badass. And while this won't be a topic of conversation for them, I do want to say that Sue was one of the first female hotshots in the country back in the mid-70s. So that'll be a great episode, and I will have that live in the next week or so, like I said. A reminder that if you like what we're doing and you value this work, uh, we would love for you to support our Patreon if possible. Uh, we have tiers ranging from $3 a month to $20 a month. And you can also make one-time donations to our PayPal account or to our Venmo. Those can all be found on our website, lifewithfirepodcast.com. And if you feel like sharing the podcast with somebody that might be interested, we'd love that. Uh, reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts is always helpful, and subscribing is also awesome as well. So lots of ways to support, and we appreciate it no matter how what level of support you're able to offer. Uh, thanks for listening, and we look forward to catching you on the next one.